how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters. Did Home Alone, Rowan John uses career, the greatest movie never made, and how Jackie Chan creates perfection through failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Megan Gans was introduced to comedy by her father, who would show her Marx Brothers movies and let her stay up late to watch David Letterman. Then as she started to write as a teenager, she fell in love with The Onion and the idea of satire. In college, she did an internship with Mad Magazine and then landed a job at The Onion soon after. Today, she's known for Community, Modern Family, The Last Men on Earth, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and Apple's new series, Mythic Quest, Raven's Banquet. In this interview, we break down all of the shows mentioned above and discuss writing character-driven impactful jokes, the goal of good satire, what it means to have a strong comedic vision, why dialogue actually comes last, and why she's always been obsessed with Always Sunny. If you enjoyed this interview, look for the print version on Creative Screenwriting's website and join millions of viewers for the new YouTube video essay series, also called Creative Principles. I always really loved comedy. I think my dad was the one that sort of turned me on to it at a young age. He showed me a lot of Marx Brothers movies, and I could watch Letterman, even though it was probably a little too old for me. <laughs> um, and so I had always really loved comedy, and um, specifically when I was a teenager, I really loved The Onion, and I kind of wanted to get into satire. That was what I um, responded to the most. So I was pursuing The Onion. Um, and uh, so that was my first job in comedy. Actually, I did an internship at Mad Magazine when I was in college. Um, so that's technically my first job in comedy. But then, um, yeah, I started off at The Onion and I really loved doing satire. And that just got me into the sort of wider world of comedy writing. And then I fell in love with narrative sitcom, you know, episodic TV. So uh, I guess that was my path in. What are you mainly looking for in satire? Do you find that you still like had a specific voice within satire, or is it mostly just kind of playing upon what's already there to work with? I, I like jumping into different voices. You know, sometimes when you satirize something, it's it's best like at The Onion, we would do things where I'd write an article, for instance, as though it were a Dr. Seuss book, 
or um, from the perspective of a 16-year-old girl whose boyfriend just went to Six Flags with another girl. And so it's fun for me to jump into those different voices and be able to try to represent like an authentic character that doesn't recognize how ridiculous it is. So that's sort of the fun to me is like if you you have to have them argue their point in such a way that you can believe that a person would believe this and not see the irony or the hypocrisy in what they're saying. So that's what always pulls me in um, in satire. How did your work start to change them? I know you worked with um, Dimitri Martin and then you wrote on Community. How did your work kind of shift as you wrote for those shows, which are still very unique in their own way? Yeah. Um, I mean, on, the, on both of those shows, you know, there was somebody at the forefront that had a very strong comedic vision. So that was great because it um, helped me hone my own sensibility um, by figuring out, you know, what I was more uh, talented at, at doing. Um, for instance, on Dimitri Martin's show, I realized that I'm not the best sketch writer because um, it's a little too short of a format for me. And I then when I moved over into um, sitcom writing, I, I really liked, you know, the 30 pages that I would get in a script to, to um, make jokes and callbacks and all of that. Um, and so uh, they were both really great experiences. And some of it was showing me what I loved. And some of it was like, oh, you, you're you don't love this so much. So maybe steer steer away from that. Is it mostly, um, do you see yourself as this writing like a, a series of small jokes or are you building to something bigger? Like what, what's kind of the benefits of the extra pages or extra timing? Um, I think character development, you know, we can, you can dig into who people are. And I think that's what narrative television has over sketch writing in general is, um, it, is you can develop uh, characters to the point where audiences will start laughing once they know the setup to the episode because they know the characters and they know how they're going to respond to it. Um, and so it gives you a little bit more depth, I think, whereas in sketch writing, unless you do reoccurring characters um, in which you, you get this, um, in sketch writing, it's like you have, you know, three to five to eight minutes to, um, to, to build a world and all the characters in it and make your jokes and have a twist and then end the, end the sketch. So I, I like the being able to return to the same characters over and over, the flexibility of being able to tell a story with characters where nothing happens. You know, I wrote an episode for a community that was a bottle episode where they stayed in the same room the entire time, but then we would also write episodes where it was like they were engaged in massive warfare and we're running around the campus. So um, it, that, that flexibility, I, I really like. What were some of the, maybe some lessons you learned while working on community? Is it, is it mainly just to like keep writing and writing until you write your way out of something? It seems like there's so many obstacles with that show where there's so many differences. What were some of the lessons you might've learned there? Um, I think the biggest thing was uh, story breaking was figuring out how to come up with a cohesive story that, um, and on that show, it was like almost compressing a movie's worth of story into 22 minutes. Um, but it really made me realize that dialogue is kind of the last thing that you should be thinking about after you really have a structure that, that of a story that makes people care about what the characters are going through. Because I used to think that it was mostly about jokes, that I watched shows and loved shows because I liked the individual jokes. But I realized that you only really appreciate jokes if you feel 
like they're not coming out of, but if they're grounded within something, either in a character or a situation, but if it's just like um, a joke that has no attachment to anything that's happening, um, it can be funny, but you're probably not going to get like the deep belly laughs that you're looking for, the sort of like, oh, people recognizing in the characters things that they themselves have done, those sort of more impactful jokes. Um, you just can't really get, um, unless you have a, a really good story and you, and people are along with the characters and they understand why the characters are making the decisions that they're making and what they think that they're going to gain out of it. Um, and you don't necessarily have to obviously give the, the characters what they think they're going to get, but the audience should at least know what their intention is. And then along the way, they're laughing at the jokes that you add in, hopefully last, but it's just, I've, I sort of left that show realizing that the jokes are the icing on the cake and that we should spend most of our time making sure the, ta- the cake tastes good. <laughs> it looks like like looking at your list of work you've done, is Modern Family like the most traditional? And Was that any harder for you where there's maybe it's not as uh, audacious in some ways? Was that more difficult or did you just really focus on character once more? It was very focused on character and the way that they broke stories on that show. I really responded to, I thought was, was great. Uh, that's why that show is so successful because they, they really get into their characters and make the most of them. Um, I think for me, the challenge came because at that time that I was working on that show, I was neither married nor like, I wasn't, I mean, I still don't have children, but I wasn't living the lie, the life that the characters in the show were and so I found it a little bit more difficult to come up with storylines I think that they could use um uh I most responded like to the characters of Haley and um Alex because it reminded me of my sister and I and that was my my sort of closest relation in my mind to the to the show so I found it a little bit limiting that way but it was a, an amazing experience and it was like the most professionally run show I had been on up to that point, and just in terms of like made by people who had been working in the industry for quite a while and kind of just knew how to make quality television on a schedule. And it just was, it was amazing to witness. And um, I learned a lot of really positive things from that show that I would take into the, the, the next few shows. And, and now that I'm a showrunner um, myself. So next you worked on um, The Last Men on Earth, which is one of really the most unique shows on television. Do you have any advice for maybe creating a resume or however you got involved with that show to do something that unique? Like, how do you kind of sell yourself to get involved with something like that where it's, you know, I mean, I guess it's a combination of an apocalyptic story slash comedy, but it's very new to what's on network TV. How do you kind of create yourself or sell yourself to do something like that? Well, I can tell you that the thing that drew that I was drawn to last man on earth for the same thing that you're talking about, which is, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before on television. I remember watching the pilot and thinking, because by that point I had worked in network TV for a while. And I remember being like, how did they possibly get this through (laughs) on network TV? One guy that they're just following around for, you know, most of the episode, I thought, Oh my God, I can't believe they, they managed. And it was, it was thrilling, which is really an exciting thing to feel when you're watching, um, network television. But, uh, so, but I would say as far as, I don't know how I sold myself necessarily, but the thing that's always guided me, um, when I'm looking for my next job is, uh, is just what I am obsessed with, what I become obsessed with, whatever thing I am watching or, um, a, a piece of comedy that I just think is, 
really engaging and new and dynamic and and interesting and all these things. And that was one that I remember from season one, I was watching and I thought, oh, if I ever hear that they're looking for somebody, I'm going to try to get on that show. Um, I, I think, I, I don't know if this is exactly what sold me in the interview, but I remember Will Forte telling me later that I made a really corny joke in the interview and that that's when he thought that I would be good <laughs> for the show because Candy on the show makes a lot of obviously very bad jokes. He he's kind of a, he thinks they're very funny, but um, I always loved that about the character, and so and I I secretly love bad jokes. So I think I made one of those in the interview, um, and that might have sold it. But I, I think just in my general advice to sell yourself in any interview is to show to the to the person who's interviewing you why you would be useful to them, meaning like don't come in and try to sell your own specific comedic voice because what you're going to need to do is write their show. So I think what I always try to do is find the connection between myself and the material that they're already making. So for instance, on modern family in the interview, I made a lot of references to how my sister and I are very much like Alex and Haley and maybe pitched some storylines along, uh, along that route, you know, um, with those characters. And because I was trying to communicate to them, like, I'm going to bring added value to you and your show and make your job easier, which I think now that I've been on the other side of that table and interviewing potential writers, it's always nice when somebody, when you see somebody and you're like, Oh, they're going to get it immediately, you know, and I, and I, they won't take a long time to get into the process of how we do things. So I, I would say like, be really be pursue what you love and what you're interested in. But also when you get in there, try to imagine how you can fit into the mechanics as they're already working. Like I didn't come into last night on earth and try to change the show. I wanted to help them make the show they're making. Cause I loved that show. And so, uh, that that's how I sold myself there. And then what's uh, your most recent works? Um, how did you get involved with Always Sunny? And then how did um, you, along with the other writers there, get involved with Mythic Quest and create this one as well? Well, I've been watching Sunny since I was in college. It's like always been one of my favorite shows. Um, I actually wrote a spec script uh, of a Sunny episode that I used to, uh, I submitted to get the job at Community. So I've been a fan of the show for a really long time. Um, and I'd always, again, been asking about them and when are they, hire, they hiring. And I, I could never, it was never passed along to me that they were looking for anybody. Um, and so I waited for years and years. And then um, how it eventually happened was I was developing a show for FX um, separately uh, after I was done with Modern Family. And that show didn't end up um, going forward, but I, I hired onto that show uh, a writer named Scott Martyr, who had written on Sunny for a number of seasons. And I basically told him how obsessed I was with Sunny and, and how much I, I just w- would want to talk about it all day and in the writer's room. And he would be like, hey, we have to make your show now. And I was like, oh, I guess. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so after that show, uh, dissolved, he went back to Sonny and I think just basically said to them, there's this woman that just won't shut up about your show. And, uh, so I got a call like a couple months later from Scott be asking me if I wanted to interview for season 12, which I freaked out at the chance, um, to do. And, uh, and yeah, so I went in and interviewed for season 12 and they ended up hiring me. And then by the next season I was 
they had made me an executive producer and I was just fully, um, into the sunny, the sunny world, which is really, I feel like everything else was kind of leading me to that place as far as the knowledge that I was getting and the skills on the different shows, because it really felt like when I walked in the sunny writer's room, it all connected in this, in this way where, um, it just feels natural and effortless, but also I'm really proud of the work I've done there. Um, and so Mythic Quest kind of came out of that, which is that Charlie and, and Rob and I um, really enjoyed working together. And when they came up with, a, they had this new project brought to them um, by Ubisoft, the gaming company, um, was interested in doing a show about uh, game development. And they just re- basically called me to the office one day and they were like, what would you think about working on this other show with us? And I just said, sign me up because we had had developed such a good working relationship. Um, and I really like their style. They, they're very, they come in, they get the work done and they go home and they live their lives and they be, then they're with their families. And I really appreciate that because, um, it uh, provides a certain balance. I mean, they're, they're lucky in that they're married to a lot of the people that work on the show with them. I mean, it's a very family based show, um, given how the characters are monsters. It's kind of surprising, but, uh, but it's a very loving environment. So, um, yeah, I, uh, it, it just sort of worked out that we, we kept wanting to develop and write stories together. So I came into Mythic Quest and that's just been like a super, it's, it's actually the first time I've ever been on the first season of a show. So it's my first experience building a show as opposed to being hired into one that's already running. This might be more of a sunny question, but I think when I, I was describing this show to someone years ago and I was saying it's kind of a, a more selfish version of Seinfeld, how do you kind of create like empathy in these characters? I mean, we, we get to know them, but if someone's watching for the first time, how do you make sure some of that is still there um, is, is, you know, as harsh as they can be sometimes? Honestly, I think it's a show that resists empathy with the characters in a way because you're supposed to they, – they are – um, they are tools to satirize certain elements of our culture. So in a way they function almost like cartoon characters and that they don't, they can't die. They don't learn lessons. They can get set on fire. And then the next day it's like that never happened. Um, so, but anything that's been around for 14 years, people do grow to love and empathize with. So it's a, it's in a very interesting place. It's right on that line, Sonny, between, fully uh, satire uh, characters that are off the wall and that we don't see ourselves in. And I think people do, unfortunately, see themselves in some of the sunny characters at certain points. And that's exactly the way that it's designed so that you have that moment of like, oh, God, I've been that. I've done that, you know, um, and and is, uh, I think, for that reason, a really effective form of satire. But it's interesting because the show has evolved, and I think that's because Rob and Charlie and the rest of the cast, they love taking risks with what the show can do. And I think the show has evolved, certainly with Mac's character, for instance, into a place where he can have this character development that we did, we thought previously not possible with these characters. Um, he can come out, uh, for instance, and have this very emotional moment. But then it just really allows us to skewer another part of uh, society, which is that just because he comes out and he's gay now doesn't mean he's not still a jerk. And so we can now show 
the way in which, yeah, it is actually equality because you're gay and it doesn't matter. Everybody still hates you and you still say monstrous things that you shouldn't. It's not like you suddenly became enlightened because you came out of the closet. So I think that they're in a very interesting place. It's like to, to investigate kind of where we are at in the world. But um, it is a, it's a funny thing. It's, a, it's the danger of that show is that some people will watch it and, and think, oh, these guys are cool and they feel like me and my friends. And that's not necessarily the intention behind it. But also maybe it's good to have those people watching the show and then maybe they'll like leading a horse to water. You'll kind of walk them up to the realization that that the show's been satirizing them the whole time. With like um, Charlie and Rob and you mentioned kind of having some limits to the day, like like stopping at a certain time. How does everyone manage to do so much? Is it because they allow times to rest? It seems like they wouldn't want to take on another show like this one where there's so much more work involved. <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's it's a good balance, but it's also they're incredibly driven people. And so they like to work and they love, I think that it's also they love what they're making. They're really proud of it and they enjoy it. Um, I think you can tell when you watch Sunny that the character, that the actors are always you know, inches away from breaking and laughing at each other. And, and that comes through in the energy of the show. And the re- reason for that is that they don't overwork the material. They keep it fresh. They, they are always changing things up so that they stay interested in it and that the audience stays interested. And so when they're on set and, and, and when we're on set and Mythic Quest is the same way, we're actually having fun doing it. Um, and so I think that's, comes through. And that's just the way, that's just the kind of environment that they've created on set. So, um, but also I think having, uh, 10 episodes on a streaming service is a lot more, uh, it's easier to wrangle than 20 some episodes on a network sitcom where it's nine to 10 months out of the year and you're just churning, churning, churning production. Um, it's kind of nice with Sunny and Mythic Quest to, pick one up and then put it down and then pick the other up because they are such different shows. It kind of allows you a break from, you know, on Mythic Quest, we're, we're really trying to ground all the characters and have real emotional arcs with them. And on Sunny, we don't need to do that. So uh, that, that also provides some relief, even though you're still working a lot. So you mentioned this is um, the first time you're, you're kind of coming in for, for page one, uh, the first episode. Tell me a little bit about how you decided or how everyone decided to do the first few minutes. It's kind of set up like a mockumentary, but we find out it's commercial. Just how, how did you kind of do that in a way where you're showing the different characters, but also making it funny? Well, you know, we tried out a bunch of different things for that cold open. And originally, I think we had something where Ian was giving a speech to... Um, to the larger Mythic Quest kind of assembled group in a big auditorium. And it was kind of introducing us to his character and also to the gaming world and everything. But then we just realized there's a lot of information. I mean, this is the problem with pilots. There's a lot of information that you need to learn and you need to learn it quickly. And for this specific type of workplace comedy, on top of the information about the characters, we also had to deliver information about the video game world because I mean, I didn't know going into it that the video that video games dwarf enter, the entertainment industry by like double. And so, telling people that right off the bat, telling them the stakes of how big this world is, we really needed to set that before we were able to show them how silly and petty the characters within that world are. So, I think, um, and, and I mean, that coupled with the fact that we had F. Murray Abraham to do the voiceover, so that's gonna <laughs> that's always gonna draw you towards doing something where you can have 
have him narrate because his voice is just so amazing. Um, so I think, I think we kind of landed on that, um, pretty late in the process of, um, maybe even we, we shot some of that while we were shooting episodes two and three and went back and stuck it into the first episode. Um, and that's, that's also, I think why the show has done as well as, as it's done is that we, we allowed for some flexibility of discovering what the show needed and not just going and thinking we knew right off the bat, what was going to make for the perfect pilot. We, because, you know, when you cast the show, things change because now you're, you're bringing in real people. Um, and that's going to change what you thought the characters were, which changes what you think the story is going to be. And so, yeah, we've made a lot of adjustments on the fly and that, um, that was definitely one of them. How much time is spent on this show for like, you know, high concept ideas, big ideas versus character development? It seems like it's still mostly character development. Uh, it definitely is. Yeah. We always start with, you know, what are, what are the dynamics between the characters? Because ultimately we don't think people are going to stay interested in the success or failure of a fake video game that doesn't exist. So what they can care about and get really invested in is the relationships between the characters because they know the characters care about the game and they then the audience hopefully cares about the characters. So what we try to do is talk about what we might want to be referencing in, in the video game landscape, but then bringing it down to something that's more relatable in a, in a workplace environment. So for instance, we had an episode where, um, our monetization expert, Brad, is struggling with the fact that he put up an item for $125,000 and it sold within a few minutes. And he basically is like, what is my job? This is ridiculous. Like, well, I'm selling air for the price of a house, you know? And he kind of goes through the struggle. And then it becomes the story where David is trying to keep morale up by doling out this little bit of cookie every once in a while for them doing you know minor tasks during the day. And that was a fun way for us to reference monetization in the video game sphere and how kind of spiraling and out of control it's gotten with things like Fortnite has made like a billion dollars in selling uh, items within the game that don't even help you win the game. They're just cosmetic items. Um, and so we, we're touching on that, but then getting into something that I think more people have experienced, which is like being in a job where you, you just suddenly are like, what am I doing? I'm wasting my life here and needing to kind of get your passion back for that thing. So, um, yeah, we always ground them in character development, even our standalone episode, which was a, a big swing as far as concept. We really spent way more time talking about the characters, the love story that was there, because we knew ultimately that was what was going to draw people in. What's something extra here we might not be thinking about compared to Always Sunny? Is, is there a lot of research involved? I mean, if this is like anything, it might be like Silicon Valley, where I know they spend a lot of time with like world building. What else was talked about as far as getting it realistic for those people who are in that world? Yeah, well, we thankfully we have producing partners at Ubisoft, so we have um, people in the room who work in game development um, full time, and so they bring to us stories that are happening within the video game world, um, and uh, and we talk a lot about those things. Um, we've also had you know a monetization expert come visit us, or um, programmers come in and talk to us about their jobs. So we're um, we're definitely trying to research enough to make sure that the world feels authentic. But then, as I said, we bring it back at the end of the day, and we want to make sure that it's also something that 
a wider audience that doesn't work in game development can relate to. Um, and so, but, but still, uh, we, what we've loved about the first season coming out is that we've, we've had some reactions from people that are within, um, uh, the gaming community say, Oh, this feels really authentic to, to what, um, you know, we experience working in this world. So that, that's the, that's the thing we're always trying to, to get at. And we'll continue to do that. Um, it's been great. Like the, the gaming community has opened its doors and been very open to like talking to us and, and, um, they have a good sense of humor about their, uh, their industry and they're willing, even Ubisoft is willing to skewer the video game industry, which they don't need to do. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been a delight. It's a, it's a wonderful world, um, that to, to finally get a chance and an excuse to research. Is, is there any advice maybe you wish you had before you start writing for community or any misconceptions you had about writing for television? That's a good question. Um, I, I mean, I've had nothing but misconceptions about what it was like to write for television because I didn't know and I didn't go to college for like screenwriting or anything like that. So I, I definitely went in thinking that um, we were there to write for maybe specific characters. Like you'd be, I think a lot of people, I, I get this question a lot that people say, which, which character do you write for? So I think there's this misconception out there that, that writers are hired to, to specifically deliver dialogue for one particular character on the show. But um, yeah, I mean, I didn't realize how, how much, socialization was required for this job, which seems to attract maybe sometimes people who aren't very good at socialization um, in the sense that like I, my job is to have a conversation that lasts all day. Essentially I come in when, I mean, not now because of the quarantine, but I used to come in at 10 AM, sit down around a table. We would talk until lunch, have lunch, and then we would talk from then until, you know, 5 or 6 p.m., and then we would go home. And sometimes at the end of the day, you would have something up on the board that sort of felt like an episode. And sometimes you would go home and it was like, did we do anything today but just talk about randomness? Um, and so that's been strange because, you know, before I worked in television, I did have a few jobs where you might go most of the day without seeing every, your coworkers you know, they might be in their office or you might be doing out doing something else. But now it's like, I see them every single day, all day long. <laughs> and so that that's interesting. And it's definitely like, you know, you become a really tight knit unit, which is, which is fun. It's like a different relationship in my life. Um, so, so that's been an interesting realization. I think also maybe uh, I've realized how much you have to, in order to write on a staff, you really need to uh, be good at swallowing your ego and realizing that yes, you're there because you have a specific comedic voice, but you're also there to do a job. And that job is to get your showrunner what they need in order to make their show. And so I think that's been good and humbling in a way to be able to figure out how to give my opinion, but also stop giving my opinion at some point and just go, well, this is their show and their vision and, Someday I'll get to be that person and I'll make every call. 
And that is our show. Thanks again for tuning in. If it's your first time, make sure to hit that subscribe button on SoundCloud or iTunes. Also check out the new video essay series on YouTube called Creative Principles. And give us a review. That's one of the best ways to help share these interviews. Thanks again.